Welcome to the Judge John Hodgman podcast, a special bonus edition just for donors. That means you. That means if you're listening to this, you donated money to Maximum Fun. That means you're a good person and not a horrible person. Good job. Or you're in the presence of somebody who donated money to MaximumFun.org, like, uh, you know, you're in the passenger seat of a car that someone really cool is driving. Well, go ahead then and, and pat that person uh, on the shoulder and say, nice job, unless it distracts them because uh, we don't want you to have an accident while driving. Exactly. So uh, speaking of driving, uh, what we're going to do on this uh, show is answer your questions about things that aren't actually cases. So you can sort of like a get-to-know-us-better type situation. Uh, and wait our first minute. question. Wait, 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 wait a minute. How is that speaking of driving? I, we're going to drive there. on through. You just cut me off Explain as I was explaining the connection to driving. Oh, okay. I apologize. I can't wait to see how this turns into a driving question. Okay. This is from Ram Wilar, the fresh maker. This is someone on social media who asked us a bunch of questions. One exactly. Of, one of many Ram- people who asked us questions, yes. Ramuilar. Ramuilar on. Go ahead and speak, alien. This is like, this starts with what I think is like a, uh, a hypothetical. Judge John Hodgman and bailiff Jesse Thorne decide to travel the country, they're in parentheses, world. Mm-hmm. I guess we have a choice in that one. Okay. Dis- dispensing justice and wisdom to those in need. What is on their road trip mixtape? Still don't see how this is a driving question. Uh, road trips. Road. Tri- how would you prefer to get around the country? Parentheses world. Hoboken. Oh, okay, fair enough. Well, then I guess it's a driving slash boxcar question. Fair enough. Uh, well, so are we making one mixtape for the both of us? I guess. I mean, I guess we're each contributing into it. We're probably both spending some time behind the wheel. All right. Here's what I'm putting on. Yeah. All of Hamilton, obviously. Okay. Okay. The whole new Santa Gold album. I don't even know if the whole thing has been released yet, but the first three songs are great, and I want them all. The complete works of John Darnielle, the complete works of John Roderick, the complete works of Jonathan Colton, the complete works of Tao Wen and Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down, the complete works of Meryl Garbus and the Tune Yards, Dom Flemons, Cynthia Hopkins, Jean Grey, complete works, all of them. This is a long mixtape. Did I miss anyone? If I did, I I mean, there are a few musical artists in existence that you haven't yet named. Well, but were any of them the the entire oeuvre of? Were any of them expert witnesses or or guest bailiffs? Because I don't want to be in trouble. Oh, yeah. What about uh, A+. Of course. I mean, A1. (laughs) A1 and John Vanderslice, of course, from our live show in San Francisco from the past year. I do apologize. My good friends. Yeah. And, of course... Uh, Monty Belmonte whistles your favorite uh, TV themes, a self-released mixtape that doesn't exist but should. What about that b- Fresh Banana song? Uh, sure, we can get the Fresh Bananas guy. Jonathan Niederer can uh, can uh, sing a few tunes. And uh, that would probably be my mixtape. What about you, Jesse? Uh, well, you pretty much took the words out of my mouth. I would also add Early in the Morning by the Gap Band. Oh, hey. Here's our next question from Alex Wright. Could you provide tips on how to strike up a meaningful conversation with a relative stranger, be it in the context of dating, networking, or shooting the breeze with fellow activity pursuers? Wait a minute. Are we moving on to the next question? 
We're not yeah. gonna we're not gonna talk about that one for thirty five long minutes. No, we're moving on to the next question. You Ooh. said your list of everyone that's ever been on the show, plus the soundtrack of Hamilton. So this is this is like lightning round justice. And Santi Gold. So you started with two full albums and then moved on to a list of every musician that's ever been on our show, yeah, which is course. exactly how well, you I hope, make a mistake. Well, I hope that that's true. Now I'm, now I'm <laughs> racking my brain. I'm going to get a strongly worded letter <laughs> you're from someone. A regular, you're a regular DJ drama when it comes to making mixtapes. <laughs> but I like how quickly we're moving through these questions. This is like lightning round justice. This is, justice is being decided by lightning strike. Kapow. Uh, how, uh, so the question was, how do you, can we provide some tips on striking up a meaningful conversation with a relative stranger? I often start by introducing myself. Uh, say hi. Well, and you say, hi, I'm Jesse. Good. Yeah. Let's, let's give it a try. I'm, I'm at a party and you're at a party. Hi, I'm Jesse. Oh, hi. I'm John. Now, where do you go from there, Jesse? Because <laughs> I've got the solution. What's that? A long time ago, I made a phone call to my fiction writing teacher in college, Mr. Lee K. Abbott. And Lee K. Abbott, I said, hi, Lee. It's me, John Hodgman, just like you did. And you know what Lee K. Abbott said to me? Hey, John, what did you do today? And suddenly, I had to think about it, and I got to tell a whole story about what I did that day, which was probably... Sleep until noon, you need some potato chips, and then read half a book, and then go to sleep again. But it was good. <laughs> and I've used it ever since. It's, uh, you know, for example, Jesse Thorne, what did you do today? I uh, went to yoga class at the YMCA. See, I didn't know you were doing yoga. How long has that been going on in your life? Not that long, John. Wow, this is, this is amazing. It's been the most incredible conversational arrow in my quiver since that day many years ago. And by the way, Lee K. Abbott is an incredible writer of short stories, and uh, I would be remiss if I did not recommend uh, his most recent collection of new and old short stories, All Things All at Once, available online or at bookstores. He's a great dude. I've often imagined uh, calling up one of my college professors and who I particularly admire mm -hmm. and had struggled to think of what I would say after I said, hi, this is Jesse Thorne. I was in your class in college 12 years ago. Um, you could say, are you still alive? Yes. Well, this one is, he. Uh, uh, the professor in question is Tom Lair, uh, the noted humorous songwriter and mathematician. I, hang on a second, Jesse, because I just need to fall down in amazement. That was not added in post-production by Mark McConville. That was live. That was a live, live fall down. That's how I felt. I felt so strongly about it that I had to do a live fall. Tom Lehrer was a was a was a a, a a professor of yours. Is that so? Yeah, that's true. At UC Santa Cruz, uh, the two notable professors at UC Santa Cruz were Tom Lehrer and Angela Davis. I never got to take a class from Angela Davis. She only taught graduate level classes, but uh, did she write the novelty song "Poisoning Pigeons in the Park"? No, you're thinking of Tom Lehrer. Oh, oh, okay. I I guess I had them mixed up then. Tom Lehrer taught a history of American musical theater class. Uh, he taught it with two other emeritus UC Santa Cruz professors. Uh, the emeritus professors at Santa Cruz were always the best professors because they were the ones who had been there 
since, you know, like 1968 when Santa Cruz was going to be like the radical revolutionary uh, hippie public college of California rather right. than the ones who had come in, you know, 1996 when it was going to be a, 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 a college known for being pretty good at marine science. I see. Um, and uh, uh, the the thing that I remember that was best that Tom Lair said was he he once dedicated about a 15... Well, actually, honestly, probably on multiple occasions, dedicated about 10, 15-minute chunks of the class to just talk, talking about how he had no interest in any songwriter in the second half of the 20th century or later other than Randy Newman and Stephen Sondheim. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> That's where he drew the line. You know what? You could, you could do worse. I know. It's a pretty solid. I mean, you could see where Tom Lehrer would, uh, a man deeply invested in uh, songs that are legitimately funny and complicated rhymes. Do you want me to give, so for those of you who don't know, Tom Lehrer is a incredible uh, songwriter who, uh, I guess, I mean, novelty song has such a bad connotation to it, but he would write funny songs. Very clever, very clever comic songs, including Poisoning Pigeons in the Park and also the Elements song, which is the entire periodic table to the tune of uh, Modern Major General from Pirates of Penzance. So you can see how this uh, his work would speak to a nerd in Brookline, Massachusetts in 1984, of course. But I, I, I think he's a genius. If But here's the thing, Jesse. Yeah. Do you want a conversational gambit to offer Tom Lehrer? Should you call him up? Yeah. Ask him this question. Tom Lehrer, is it true that you invented... The Jello shot. Great. Did you have you ever asked him that? I've never asked him that, but that seems like a solid piece of business. You know that you know that the whole internet believes that that is true. I didn't know that. Yeah, but uh, I can see that. I could see Tom Lehrer inventing the Jello shot. He was a he was a he was like an elderly grumpus, but an amusing one. Is he still alive? Yeah, he okay. has a great he has a great and historically, I don't know if this is still the case because phone books no longer exist, but his phone number was in the phone book in Santa Cruz. My my friend uh uh my friend Tyler McNiven, uh best known as uh later having won the amazing race. Uh, but Tyler when we were in college was similarly shameless as to his as he was on the amazing race and he looked Tom Lehrer up in the phone book and just called him and asked if he could come over. And what did Tom Lehrer say? Yes. And so Tyler went over and brought him a pineapple mm-hmm. as a gift. Well, that is a a, a a traditional gift of hospitality. Yeah. And uh, hung out with Tom Lehrer for a little bit and then left. Mm-hmm. Did he ever, did he have a jello shot before he went? Because that might have been a tip off. He didn't. He did not. Judge Hodgman. <sighs> here's okay, a question. I know we from... got to move on with lightning speed, but I'm just going to ask producer Julia. If... <laughs> Can you please see if you can get Tom Lehrer's telephone number so we can call him at the end of this podcast? All right, moving on. Here's a question from underscore magpie underscore. If the judge could try one recipe from Mary Land's Louisiana cookery, that legendary cookbook, which would he choose? Well, my favorites, of course, are the recipes for squirrel head pot pie and owls. Um, and if I had to choose between them, I think I would do squirrel head pot pie. Because it, it causes the death of more animals because it's not a single squirrel head. It's, you know, a right. number of squirrel heads. Right. But it seems perverse to eat an owl. And somehow, if I'm going to do one bit of, of 
unusual and probably very rarely made game food. Poverty game food from the American South. I think squirrel head pot pie would be the one, uh, the one story I would dine out on more later on, so to speak. Curry Mango wants to know, both of you have talked about the Sega Genesis on the show. I'd like to know, what was your favorite Sega Genesis game? Did you have a Sega Genesis? I don't remember you talking about a Sega Genesis. I would, I, I never had a Sega I never had to say a Genesis from time to time after I had moved to New York City and there were still blockbusters, I would rent a Sega Genesis console for an afternoon and some games. That's because you couldn't afford to rent a Philips CD Interactive? A CDI? Yeah. I don't know why I, I don't know why I was motivated to do this. It happened a couple of times. And uh, I, I played Sonic the Hedgehog for a while, but my my favorite game on it obviously was Star Trek: The Next Generation: Futures Past from 1994. <laughs> Jonathan Colton and I played Star Trek: The Next Generation: Futures Past one afternoon, and I think I may have discussed this on the podcast where I I could I, I I this is too embarrassing to admit. I don't even know if I remember this correctly, and I don't want to embarrass Jonathan this way. But it was like I played the captain, and he I said what he should do, and he moved the characters around according to my orders. What a monster I am. What a <laughs> terrible monster I am. <laughs> I'm flushed now, having confessed that. Do that I is that horrible. Correctly? I know. And it was horrible for him to, to agree to it. But <laughs> I, I think what he understood... As I think he understood from the first day I met him, <laughs> that I'm a profoundly troubled human being who, who means well, but occasionally needs to be indulged. He was caring for you, in other words. Yes. He Mentally was, ill. He was caring for your mental illness. There was something so, like, because I was never into Star Trek, the original series. I mean, I liked it. It was fine. And, you know, I'd seen The Wrath of Khan and loved it and so on in the movies. But the next generation really spoke to me and I only really got into it in that 1994 year. You know, like I was just out of college, but I watched it every night in syndication uh, while I was in college because everything seemed under control. And I love Patrick Stewart. And I love Jean-Luc Picard because this was a guy who felt I feel like he felt the same way I did unlike Captain Kirk who wanted to go and punch some lizards in the face and make love to green women Captain Picard just wanted to have a routine mission and nothing appealed to me more in life than the idea of a routine mission on a very clean calm starship like the Enterprise D and if I you know my my favorite it always bothered me when I would watch the episodes and they would all be sitting there, friends, enjoying their completely sex-neutral relationships with access to a holodeck and a nice place to sit and their own private cozy little rooms. This was like my dream. It was like a space dorm where everyone was nice to each other. But then every now and then, not every now and then, every episode, unfortunately, something would happen. They, they would then have to fix. And I hated that. I just wanted to watch Routine Mission. Nothing happens. That would be my favorite Sega Genesis game. Star Trek The Next Generation routine mission i i would love to i i would love to watch i i recognize what you're describing right now from yeah. my feelings towards downton abbey yeah if, if downton abbey was basically just a show where some different people showed me outfits 
<laughs> I would love it. But anytime something like anytime something like exciting or interesting happens, I right. check out immediately completely. They call it in screenwriting and television writing a plot. And yeah. Sometimes it's that. just not welcome. Uh, my favorite, I did have a Sega Genesis. I bought it with my own money. Yeah. Uh, I had it late in the run of Sega Genesis, relatively late in the run. Of, it was my first video game system. Um, but because I had bought it with my own money and it cost a lot of money, like $80 or something, mm-hmm. uh, I did not have a lot of money for games. So my favorite games were all used sports games, which is the, always the best value in video gaming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, two-year-old sports games immediately cost $8. And uh, I played, I believe it was NHL 93, which was uh, the one where you could punch a guy and he would fall on the ice and blood would come out of his head, which was amazing to me. And I would make whole teams of this one thuggish defenseman named Ty Domi and play against another whole team of Ty Domi's because Ty Domi had was the most likely to start fights in the whole game. Mm-hmm. And so you would just it would just be fight after fight after fight after fight. And I played a ton of um, uh, I played a ton of Madden '95, and in fact, one of my best friends from middle school was just making fun of me a week ago uh, for the fact that I would always play the Philadelphia Eagles and be Randall Cunningham. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I loved Randall Cunningham. Uh huh. And I played a ton of Bulls versus Blazers and the NBA playoffs, which I loved. I loved being the sharpshooters, like Mark Price. Now, I couldn't find, as we were talking, I couldn't find uh, an entry on Wikipedia for NHL 93. I did find one for NHL 94 and discovered more than I could ever hope for from the article, and I quote, Also introduced were team-specific organ songs played at the start of periods and after goals. Examples included the Hartford Whalers trademark Brass Bonanza. As well as Halt la les Canadiens sont là for the Montreal Canadiens when the Saints go marching in for the St. Louis Blues, of course, because St. Louis is known for where the Saints go marching in. Uh, the Sabre Dance for the Buffalo Sabres and the Chicago Blackhawks theme song, Here Come the Hawks. How yeah, it was probably that? NHL 94. The other game that I had that uh, I usually bring up if I'm trying to get a video game connoisseur points is this game called Flashback. It was mm-hmm. a very sort of complicated adventure puzzle game. But the truth is that it was it was very difficult to get to a save point, as I recall, and uh, I was not old enough to have the patience to win a game like that. Uh, and it was before you could just look up a hard part on the internet, and there were a lot of weird hard parts, and uh, so I was awful at it, and I don't think I ever made it past, like, the second level or whatever. Are you referring to Flashback, The Quest for Identity? Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Did you ever play the sequel entitled Fade to Black? No, but I I remember wondering whether I should. Uh, wow. I have to investigate this, but I'm excited that to picture you, young Jesse Thorne, playing... Oh, you have to excuse me. There is a giant hawk sitting... Oh, it just flew away. The most majestic and large r- raptor, I believe... A, kind, a Harris hawk, maybe? I don't know what kind of hawk it is. Sitting on the fire escape outside my window. It was incredible, Jesse. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before. I apologize. At first I thought it was an owl come to get revenge on us. <laughs> but it was a hawk. Wow. 
Never mind. Let's move on. Okay. Uh, I'd like to hear Bailiff Jesse and Judge Hodgman's top two favorite obscure pieces of culture. Now, let me just point out, I'm currently podcasting to you all now from Brooklyn, New York, not Hawktown, Maine or anything. This is a City Hawk, which is a good name for something. City Hawk. I'll think about what that might be. My favorite piece of obscure culture Do you remember that show from the early 1990s? It was a detective superhero show called City Hawk. And I I think it sounds vaguely familiar. I can't quite place it, but I believe you that it's definitely real. It was it starred Avery Brooks, but he was not reprising his role as Hawk from Spencer for Hire. Okay, but he was he was a a police detective who was in a in a very sort of rip offy Batmany way who had made friends with a mysterious vigilante in an unnamed city called City Hawk. And they drove around in, they both for some reason had Plymouth Prowlers. Do you remember that? Uh (laughs) Sure. And City Hawk would unwind by playing a hot saxophone solo at the end of every episode on top of a rooftop. Mm -hmm. And And he didn't fight, he didn't fight street crime so much as emerging AOL cybercrime. Mm-hmm. That's my favorite obscure piece of culture. I was somewhere in the San Fernando Valley last week, mm-hmm. and I thought of Spencer for Hire, uh, the legendary series of both detective novels and uh, uh, a famous television series, and I think maybe some movies at some point. Some TV movies. Mm-hmm. And uh, starring Robert Urich, the late Robert Urich, and Avery Brooks, who later would become Captain Cisco on Deep Space Nine. And I was in maybe Van Nuys or Encino or I don't even know. And it's if you've never been there, it's just this it's just this a continuous expanse of these sort of over wide sun baked streets and kind of like slightly bleached out storefronts and strip malls. Mm-hmm. And I saw a storefront and it did not look defunct, although I don't know how it could possibly not be defunct, but it didn't look defunct that advertised an answering service. Mm. You know, it was the full facade of the of the storefront advertised an answering service, and it was a pretty sizable storefront. And the thought that I had was an answering service. What am I, Spencer for hire? <laughs> I don't know why I had such a specific idea of who uses an answering service. I, you know, an answering service would have been, it's now a, a needless business, but they would provide, they, they would, you, they would, you would forward your phone to them so that when you weren't around to answer it, they would answer it and take a message. Is that right? And you would call in mm-hmm. to get your messages. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like a brick and mortar voicemail. Exactly. That is the sort of thing that Spencer for hire. Spencer was a private detective and in Boston and when they turned those novels into a TV show and they shot it in Boston, we were all, believe me, very excited. And the one time they shot some scenes at Brookline high school and it was, it was like, that was the big time. That's how those of us who grew up in San Francisco felt about Nash bridges. (laughs) There you go. Uh, what is, but is your favorite piece of obscure culture then the answering service? Sure. Why not? Well, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm a professional, 
describer of my cultural obsessions. So I don't think I like I don't know what I would give people that would be a surprise to them. I mean, we've already talked about Brass Eye in this show. I've talked so much about how much I love watching Larry Sanders on this show. Um, I mean, everyone knows how I feel about Babe Pig in the City mm-hmm. or Pootie Tang. Mm-hmm. You know, like I can say, sure, Swamp Dog is a brilliant soul singer and songwriter who's deeply underappreciated, whose songs are scathing and sometimes hilarious and often beautiful and he once ro- he once won an award for from the Country Music Association of America for Country Songwriter of the Year for writing a song for Johnny Paycheck mm-hmm. um, with Gary U.S. Bonds, a brilliant genius. But like people know, I like Swamp Dog. He's been on uh, he's been on my show twice. You know who I have a fondness for? Who uh, is the is the actor Neil McDonough, and uh, in particular, a movie that he was in. Neil McDonough has these icy, piercing blue eyes, and he was in Star Trek First Contact, and he's I think he's a, a villain on Arrow now, um, and he's been all over the place forever. But I first tuned into him on a movie called Ravenous, which was a 1999 movie starring Guy Pearce and Robert Carlyle about cannibalism, historic cannibalism in the 1840s. And uh, I would I would take another look at that movie. But City Hawk is really my recommendation. Look it up. See if you guys can find it on VHS somewhere. City Hawk. Here's something from Josh Coles. If either of you were to move away from your respective homes, where would you move to? Jesse, you can't choose San Francisco or New York. Hodgman, you can't choose L.A. or Brookline, Massachusetts. So neither of us can go home again. Neither of us can stay where we are. And neither of us can go to the next best media city for the various entertainment media jobs that we do. Is that correct? Yeah. By next best media city, you mean other option of media city. Right. In America. I mean, we can America, to Toronto well, or London or something. I was going to say London or Vancouver uh, or Toronto. Sure. Yeah. I could see moving to London. Let's move to London, Jesse. I've honestly thought about moving to London. I, I, um, my wife and I had a conversation about whether we should do that once. The best part about it is it's affordable. <laughs> said the guy who lives in new york uh to the guy who lives the guy who lives in la it's 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 a it's a lot less affordable than either of our cities i think right now but let's move to london we'll have a good time let's do it that sounds like a plan all right okay so along those lines rum rations asks what jobs or careers do you think you'd like to do other than what you're doing right now i came very close in a non-jokey way uh, a couple summers ago to purchasing a general store in coastal Maine so that I could make scrambled eggs every morning for money. And I'm not sure I made the right, I didn't do it, and I'm not sure I made the right decision. What does a general store in Maine cost? A dozen eggs. Right. It's affordable. It, it co- you know, the, the whole business, if I remember correctly, cost couple hundred thousand dollars and that bought you that bought you the 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 business and the and the building and whatever leftover cans of spam and half empty liters of diet moxie they had lying around and the pizza ovens and the and the kitchen and everything and it's just like this would be a fun way to turn my life into a soft reboot of the classic sitcom Newhart. Where a city guy goes into the country and deals with people. 
And I was very tempted to do it because it's true that every every morning I wake up, I could, I have done and would happily do make scrambled eggs. I just love it. I just love making scrambled eggs and all breakfast foods. And I thought, and breakfast sandwiches in particular, and and in in coastal Maine, the the breakfast sandwich, your bacon, egg, and cheese, your sausage, egg, and cheese, your ham, egg, and cheese on muffins, on whatevers, you know, and rolls, you know, that is a very highly refined art form. Everyone eats those things as they will eat bright, luminous, red hot dogs and seven pizzas a day because that's how they comfort themselves for living in a, in a very difficult environment, a difficult and cold place. And I just feel like I, I could do that and be very, very satisfied in a lot of ways, but I didn't do it. So there. I have, you? I mean, like every job that I ever think of to do, I have done. That's why I have like 10 jobs. Right. I mean, like, I could say, like, oh, I would like to be an antique stealer, but I just opened the Put This On shop, you know? I would like to, uh, I'd like to be a, f- a documentary filmmaker, but, I mean, that's why I made Put This On. Right. You know, I'd like to have a blog about menswear. That's why I started the Put This On blog. <laughs> so there's nothing, there's nothing left in your, in your uh, portfolio of desires? I mean, other than being a millionaire many times over for doing the things you love? I mean, I don't. I I'm. I do the things that I like. Yeah. I mean, I I think, I think one thing that uh, uh, one thing that I would like to do is there are certain categories of things that I've dabbled in but haven't been able to pursue simply because they're things that take uh, long blocks of time. You know, like folks have asked me trapeze artistry. Have, exactly. <laughs> All the circus arts. <laughs> the kind of thing that means for me would be like writing a book. Hmm. Uh, making a documentary film that was longer than ninety seconds long, uh huh, um, or or even directing it myself. Um, if by weird circumstances, by the same wave of a wand, by the malicious pixie that said you can no longer live in the town you live in or go home again, this same interdimensional menace said to you, which is all powerful, by the way, you know, like a batmite or a Mister Mister Blubblick. Mm-hmm. You have Mr. to, Mister Mitsopitalik, Mister Mitsopitalik. You have to give up all the jobs you have and pick a completely unrelated job. What would you do? Man, please note, everybody, that pause was live. That was not. Mark McConville did not put in that long, soul-searching, agonized pause that actually happened, just like me falling off my chair. I probably would have just ended up being an academic of some kind, although I was not good enough at school to do that. Now, I'm not saying what you would have done. I'm saying as of today. Oh, geez, man. I don't know. You want to go in on a general store with me in Maine? I mean, can I sell antiques there? Yes, you can. Okay, that I'm in, yeah. Bring! It is done! By the way, Jesse, I am an inter- interdimensional imp that, I, that, has been, <laughs> that, has been, that has been leading you along now for five years until this very moment. Say goodbye to your family. We're going to Maine. Here's a question from It's Deuce. What's the proper way to wear a tam shanter Well, that's easy. And this is the easiest question in the whole gosh darn thing. The answer to that is, as a server at the amazing Los Angeles restaurant, the Tam O'Shanter. Fair enough.
I've uh, never I've never been, but I've heard wonderful things about it. Shall we go? Yes, we definitely shall go. <laughs> the Tam O'Shanter is the best. I was going to say on your head, because I'm a weird dad who's getting used to making terrible jokes. Uh-huh. And then I my guess my guess was that you might say something along the lines of don't do it. If you're not a server at the Tam O'Shanter restaurant in Los Angeles, is there a circumstance where a man, and let's say a man, because I think a woman could get away with a Tam O'Shanter pretty nicely. Yeah. But a dude uh, in his 30s, say, could be walking around wearing a Tam O'Shanter and you would be like, that looks good. In the United States? Yes, that's right. In the United States. And the person is not like the front man of a band? This is just a person walking walking down the street in Atwater Village, Los Angeles. No. Absolutely not. No. Good to know. I mean, the closest would be if you were a Scottish person actively playing golf in Scotland. I got you. No problem. I'll just put this Tam O'Shanter away and... I'll send it. I'll send it to the guy I do a podcast with in Scotland. How about that? Okay. So another one about um, uh, another one about clothes. Uh, somebody asked me uh, about when it's appropriate to wear uh, a collared shirt uh, with a t-shirt underneath it. Mm-hmm. And that is an open collared collared shirt with a t-shirt underneath it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and we've discussed this before. My strong position on this is that, with very rare exception, uh, it's you should not show your undershirt. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I just went to the the premiere taping uh, just a couple of days ago of the fantastic new television show Full Frontal with Samantha B. Um, because I went to support my dear colleagues Samantha B. and Jason Jones, who's a producer. And um, there was a party in the office afterward, and I'm not going to name names because I'm not terrible. But there was a, a a dude there who I know and like quite a bit who was wearing a shirt with a white T-shirt, a little white triangle peeking right up under his neck. And I couldn't look at anything else because he, he was breaking your rule and he didn't even know it. Yeah, that's a that's a total failure. You got to and, and but he, he this guy claims that he's got too much chest hair, which is something that I hear from people. Uh, I've got too much chest hair to do that, uh, to wear a V-neck undershirt underneath my open collared shirt. Uh, my position is uh, multi-part. The first one is nobody cares about it as much as you do. Mm-hmm. This is the same. Sometimes people ask me, I have really big feet. What kind of shoes should I wear to make my feet look smaller? Mm-hmm. No one it's cares like, about your no feet. No one cares about your feet. No one cares. Um, you know, if you if you have genuinely like voluminous chest hair you know you could trim it down a little bit but you know mostly people don't care it's just how you are maybe he's kryptonian and earth's yellow sun makes it impossible for him to cut his hair if you are that worried about it you can wear a closed collared shirt uh and there is sort of one situation where i would say it's okay to wear a crew neck shirt underneath a collared shirt and that's when it is when the pieces are being layered for effect. That is to say, where the crew collar shirt underneath is not an undershirt, but is, you know, part of the ensemble. You know, maybe you have a few extra buttons unbuttoned on the top shirt. You know, you're wearing it as an overshirt rather than, you know what I mean? Like you look like a, a sort of J. Crew model type look. Yeah. Um, that's fine. 
Uh, that would typically like frat, not like be like a frat guy. Yeah, that would typically not be. Uh, I would prefer for that not to be a white undershirt. There was some. Kind oh, of, I see. Some like, kind of colored, solid colored shirt. Like you know, um, it would be cool. Get get a uh, get a vintage T-shirt with an iron-on uh, featuring the logo from that TV show City Hawk. That uh-huh. would be that would be cool. Very retro, and then put yeah. that underneath a layer over a, a, a button-down shirt of some kind over that. But you get to let that City Hawk logo show. I've done I've done that a lot. I do not have a, a City Hawk T-shirt. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I do have a George Plimpton's Video Falconry T-shirt that I wear in that style sometimes. Here's what I have to say: to This dude, I want to see your chest hair. Just let it fly, dude. No one cares. Yeah, it'd be cool. No one cares. Own it. Yeah. It's, some people like it, don't like it. Some people do like it. Just like any other thing about any of us. It just is what it is. Some people like it. Some people don't like it. And most people won't notice it. Yep. Rachel asks, how do I balance my desire to be cool with the knowledge that trying to be cool negates my coolness? For those of us to whom it doesn't come effortlessly, are we doomed to be grasping goobers? I'll hang with a grasping goober any old day. Yeah. Number one, I think that... uh, uh, I, I think that there are a lot of ways to successfully be in the world that aren't about being cool. I can tell I would, you exactly how to be cool. What's that? To quote what's Hamilton, that? talk less. To unquote Hamilton, don't smile more. Don't talk. Don't be emotionally available. Treat the people around you like garbage. And guess what? You will be considered cool. You will also be unhappy and you will actively make other people unhappy. So don't do it. I would also disabuse Rachel of the notion that being cool is about not trying to be cool. Uh, I would say that being cool is about not appearing to be trying to be cool. Right. The people who are cool are working hard at it. Yeah, they're working super hard. Like, it's like their main thing. Right. And some of them turn it into a profession, you know, uh, or, or it aids them in certain ways. But they're all trying. And I would say once you realize that those people are empty husks of human beings and uh and it and it's and it's beyond your grasp and frankly pocketbook to to attempt to be them and instead you feel comfortable being yourself you will define a different kind of cool which is your own so don't worry about it ginger asks judge hodgman what sage words of wisdom do you have for someone who's just crossed the threshold into their 40s well, what sage words of wisdom do I have for you? Death is coming. No, that's 45. 40 is different. <laughs> 40 brings a, 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 an amount of panic because it's a milestone, but it is a milestone that I ended up really enjoying. It is a, it is a milestone of true adulthood. By the time you are 40... You, your tastes are coalesced. I hope in your life that your professional and creative and family endeavors are all more or less where you would like them. And if they're anywhere close, you can look around and sort of count the good things in your life and realize this is great. I don't have to do anything I don't want to anymore. Uh, 40 was the year when my wife and under her tutelage, I as well realized that um, we don't have to answer the phone. 
we don't have to accept invitations that don't actively seem fun. We can we can alien we can alienate people in our lives, or at least trust trust people uh, in our lives that um, that they will be as okay as we are as okay with them. Kind of tending their own gardens and not being quite as social and and really just having the time that you want to have. I feel like a lot of for a lot of people. Their 20s and their 30s are about exploring. And if you still have something to seek out, you might have to do some more exploring. But being 40 kind of gives you license to be selfish in a lot of social situations um, that you don't often give yourself before you're 40. And it's it's kind of liberating. 45, you realize that time is passing very quickly. And just yesterday you were 40 and you are very close to death. But between 40 and 45... I had a great time, and I bet you will too. Happy birthday. One time I was worrying about turning 30. Yeah. And uh, I happened to be in a car with Jad Abumrad from Radiolab. Sure. And Jad was already into his 30s. And, uh, you know, I think my identity was tied up in being a young person. Uh because I was, you know, my, you know, part of my thing was like I was the young guy of public radio and that kind of you thing. You were the sound of young America. Exactly. And uh, Jad said to me, your 30s are great. It's when you're good at stuff and you make money and you enjoy it. Or something along those lines. Very nicely put. Uh, and uh, I don't always feel that way by any means. For one thing, I'm not as good at anything as Jad is or the things that he does. I wouldn't say that. Um, but uh, uh, the notion that uh, getting older brings with it a, a well into your, you know, uh, well into middle age, uh, brings with it increased self-knowledge and inc- increased social power, uh, even if you may not have the social capital of cool youthfulness. Uh, you are more powerful in organizations and so on and so forth. Uh, that is a great comfort to me. <laughs> it's 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 true. Like 40 is, you have to confront that you're no longer a child in the, the child that you were in your 20s and the child that you were pretending to still be in your 30s. You have to confront that that is over and that is a transition. But being a grown-up, and acknowledging that you're a grown-up has tremendous, I think, psychological liberating benefit to it. I'm a grown-up and I can do what I want. I don't want to go to that party. I don't want to do anything. I don't I want to go, I want to stay home and and watch old episodes of City Hawk on Netflix, now available, and uh and and eat a sandwich at 2 a.m. in the morning. I'm a grown-up. I can do what I want. Nothing expressed this feeling to me better than a line from the, the, the late and lamented podcast of Pod, Paul F. Tompkins called the Pod F. Tomcast. It was the final episode. He per- was performing a rap in, uh, in the voice of his character, Cake Boss. And I won't attempt to do the voice, but it was cake for dinner. Uh, sure, you're an adult. <laughs> you get what you want and you like the result. <laughs> I liked it so much. It's so perfectly underscored what being a grown-up is. I might have cake for dinner. Go have cake for dinner. You deserve it. 
Ginger. P.S. Listen, listen to Paul F. Tompkins on his new podcast, Spontanea Nation, and watch No You Shut Up on the Fusion Network, Thursdays. Well, on that note, we bring this episode to a close. Oh, okay. Yeah, let's do Let's see. Let's see if we can. Can we dot? Can you dial him in and we'll leave a message? Hi, Professor Lair. This is Jesse Thorne. Um, I was a student in your class many years ago. Uh, you may remember that I often disrupted class announcing guests on my radio show and announcing improv shows. Um, it was your musical theater class. And uh, uh, I was doing a podcast with my colleague, uh, John Hodgman. Hi, and- hi, Professor Lair. It's John Hodgman. I'm on the line, too. Uh, he was a great admirer, was and is a great admirer of yours, and um, uh, was impressed that I took a class with you once, and I talked about how I had always thought I should call you sometime and invite you to come on my NPR show, Bullseye. So I made um, him do it. So he made me do it. Um, so I hope you're well. Uh, my telephone number is and my email is jesse at maximumfun.org, and I sincerely would love to uh, interview you for the NPR show that I do. These, that is actually the same show that I was announcing, interrupting your class in college uh, 12 and, years ago. And my name's John Hodgman. Again, I'm the co-host of this podcast that Jesse was discussing. And I just have a very, I don't need to interview you for a public radio show or anything like that. I just have a very simple question. Did you invent the jello shot? If you could call me back and let me know my number is, or you could just tell Jesse and he could tell me with great respect and admiration. Uh, this is John Hodgman signing off. Uh, thank you, Professor Lehrer. So, sorry to bother you again, all these many years later. Oh, Jesse, I'm very. Ex- I, you know what? I was I I was going to fall off my chair again, but I I grew paralyzed with there excitement. You there you go. We called him. This was the day that I called Tom Lehrer and saw a hawk. <laughs> I'm going to write that in my diary. You know where I would move, John? Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz is cool. It's super chill. Full of hawks and Tom Lehrer? I don't know if there's hawks. There's elephant seals, so that's pretty cool. I don't know. I don't, it's too, too, too overstimulating for me. I'm going to write this down in my diary. It's, it's my diary. It's just down here on the floor. Ah! Oh! Uh, thanks to everybody who supported MaximumFun.org. Uh, we, we couldn't do this without you, and, and we couldn't appreciate you more. Uh, We'll talk to you next time on the Judge John Hodgman podcast. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.